Well, dear friends, we are in Luke chapter 11. We'll be walking through verses 5 through 13, and this is after a five-part series on the four verses that come just prior to this, Luke 11 and 1 through 4, and that was the Lord's Prayer. We want to use what we glean from the Lord's Prayer to inform us even how we will interpret this passage, a passage that has been interpreted in different ways, even in reading commentaries. I see people that are walking away with different perspectives, and I think in particular, just as you have with all passages, but with this one in particular, we need to be mindful of where it is placed, where it is flowing in uh, Luke's layout within this gospel, and it is following the Lord's Prayer in Luke chapter 11. So let's read through these verses, Luke 11 and verses 5 through 13. It says, And he said to them, Which of you has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, Do not bother me. The door is shut. My children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, it will be opened. What father among you, if a son asks for a fish, will give him fit, uh, ask for a fish, will instead of a fish, give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Christ gives a very important illustration here on prayer. The setting is different from our own. There's a lot of things that you need to take into account in understanding this passage. This is the idea of a man who has a friend, and his friend had traveled a great distance. He had most likely traveled at night. That's why he arrived at midnight. Many times in these hot and arid regions, you will travel at night to avoid uh, the heat. They didn't have air conditioning like we did, so you use natural air conditioning by traveling at night and staying in the shade uh, during the day. And this friend likely arrived unannounced. There was a knock on the door late at night, a loud pounding that surprised everyone who was asleep at that time, and they weren't expecting him. They didn't have food prepared for him so that he could eat. He traveled, and he showed up, and this wasn't completely uncommon because communication at this time wasn't like it is today. You couldn't just send him an email. You couldn't just easily communicate with, with someone else. The man needed to make a journey. He had made his journey. He was in a town. This was his friend, and his friend went to his friend's house so he could have a place to stay. But the man who owns this house had no bread. He had no bread baked for this midnight visitor, and that wouldn't have been made until the next day. But he felt obligated to provide for his friend. His friend was hungry. His friend had been traveling over the night. He couldn't just go to the store. He couldn't just go down the street to Walmart and buy some bread. So he went to the next best thing, which was to another friend's house, and he knocked on his door at this late hour. So there's things that you need to see. We need to frame this and give ourselves just a little bit of a perspective on this illustration to 
kind of frame this to help us to walk forward, because if we're not careful, we will end up with an interpretation that I don't think quite aligns with um, what is being communicated within this passage. So there's two aspects that we see here. The first is that what the man asks for is not of great value. He asks for three loaves of bread, and this is not even like large loaves of bread like you would buy at a grocery store, but rather these are smaller little flat flat bread cakes almost, you could say, just kind of flat bread, um, three pieces of that, enough for one person to eat, or enough for one person to eat with his meal that he was likely gonna, going to receive. It's, it's not of great significance uh, to, to the one that, is, um, that has the bread. It's not a large value. But I also want you to see there's a boldness that is here. There's a boldness that he's making such a request, that he's going to his friend at this time of night. His family is asleep. Look at his response there in verse 7. He says, do not bother me. The door is now shut. My children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. So to help you have another picture here of, of what is going on, he says his family is already in bed. Most likely, it's not that everyone is sleeping in the same bed necessarily, but they're all probably sleeping in the same area. It's likely this is one large room, and room, the room had many different purposes, and it would change its purpose depending on the time of day or what was going on, and right now, this room is serving as a, uh, a bedroom. And this, um, that's, they have the mats out, the kids are there, they are asleep, there's likely animals that are there as well. Remember when we were talking about the scene with the manger, all right, where, um, where, where, where there was no room in the inn, right, and then so they're out there with the animals, and we always have these Christmas plays, and they're off over here in a, in a mountain somewhere, but that's not exactly how this was generally done. These were generally connected to the house, and so you would have a little kind of a, a, uh, an animal area connected to the house where you could feed the animals, and it was connected to the general residence that was there, so opening the door would have awoken the animals as well. It's not just the children. It likely would have awoken the animals. It would have been um, very disturbing. You might even say, what's, what's the deal? I can open the door quietly. I mean, maybe even if you have, like, you know, a really noisy, squeaky lock, maybe you know how to turn it just in a way so it doesn't wake other people up. But that's not how this door was. This wasn't a door like you have at your house that's on hinges that easily opens and closes. It's not something that was lightweight. It was likely a large block of wood or a series of pieces of woods that were put together. And it had um, iron clasps that went together and, and locked it shut. And so it would have been noisy. It would have been an ordeal to open this door. It wasn't a small thing just to open the door, hand them some bread, shut the door, and lock the door. So why this illustration? How does this illustration uh, help us within this, this context or help us uh, within understanding this. We've got to consider this, this illustration in light of what we have been studying already in the Lord's Prayer and, and how the Lord Jesus instructed his people uh, to pray. We call it the Lord's Prayer, but remember it's better called the Disciples' Prayer because the Lord Jesus could not have ever prayed that prayer himself. Why is that? Because one of the lines is, forgive us our sins. Did your Lord Jesus ever pray, forgive me my sins? Did the Lord Jesus ever sin? Was there any imperfection in the Lord Jesus Christ? No, absolutely not. This is rather an instruction for us. It is a model that should inform us in our prayer. Not that 
every single prayer that we say has to check off every single box that is there or that it has to be prayed in that exact formula or that you have to recite those exact words, but rather what is there within that prayer must inform us. It must be a reminder to us in any prayer that we are involved in. We go to the Lord, first and foremost, we saw as our Father. The Lord has saved us. If you are in Christ Jesus, you are in the family of God. You have been adopted into his family, the family of the Almighty God. We say, Father, hallowed be your name. Remember, that's how we began. We, we saw his imminence, his, the, the, the fact that he is there. We saw his, his transcendence, the fact that he is, he is far off. He is different. He is distinct. He is, as the angels said in Isaiah 6, he is holy, holy, holy. He is very different. He is very distinct from you. We could list out all the ways in which God is different from you and I, but we come to him as Father. Father, this is, this is different, and this needs to inform us here. There are some that look at this passage and see this is just about persistence, knocking and knocking and knocking and knocking and knocking and continuing to go forward and forward. Some passages even translate the word that way. I think it says impudence here, but it, in, in uh, other, other translations it will say persistence. Persistence, I do not think, is, is the key here. It, he didn't keep knocking and knocking and continuing to go on, but rather it was the boldness of what he did in coming to him. And so we are to contrast this man who goes to his friend for bread at midnight and contrast that with us going to God, our Father, in prayer. Now, there is a commentator named Linsky. He's really one of my favorite. He's a Lutheran commentator, but he is, he is fantastic on these uh, parables, illustrations, a lot of the historical context here within uh, many of the gospel passages. And he does a great job in um, laying these two out, comparing these two realities. So let's, let's compare these two. Number one, um, the man was only a friend, just a friend of this man. It wasn't even a part of his family. But when you go to the Lord God, you're going to God as Father. You are one who has been adopted into the family of God. You're one who was pulled out of darkness and placed in light. Number two, we have him coming at, at midnight, okay? This, this time offers a great excuse when he could say, no, this is not appropriate. It is too late. If I came knocking on your door for bread at midnight, you might not want to give me any bread. You might be annoyed with me. Why are you coming to my door at midnight for, for bread, all right? With God, there's no night. There's no inconvenient time for God. It's the exact opposite. You can't go to the Lord at a time when he's busy doing something else. He is not like those false gods, all right, that, that Elijah was deriding, all right, that he was making fun of in the Old Testament. And they, as the prophets of Baal began to go around and cut themselves and yell and scream and seek to get their God's attention, and remember what he said. He said, well, maybe they're in the bathroom, right? They looked at their gods as a glorified human or like a demigod or, or, or someone who was just, just a little bit better than human or a super human, like a, maybe like a Marvel character, someone who has special powers, but you read the stories of many of these gods and they do many silly things. They get tricked, they get drunk, they do sinful behaviors. Not so with God. God is distinct. He is not asleep. He's not busy. There's nothing that is occupying his mind when you go to him in prayer. Thirdly, this is one who is, uh, this is one who 
The sleeper does not even know who he is at first when he's knocking on the door, but you're known by God. You are one of his children. You're one of his children. You're a child of God. I know you hear that many times over, but it must not be something that you get too accustomed to, that you become too used to hearing. This is significant, that you are praying, Father, hallowed be your name. Do you know the great many religions that find that to be offensive, that you would call God Father? Do you know how many find it offensive that you would claim to be a member of the family of God? But that's what was necessary, and that's what the Lord did on your behalf, that you could be saved, that he would crush the head of the serpent and give you life. Fourthly, we see this is a slight need, all right, even in Eastern customs of hospitality, all right? The, the friend could have waited until the morning. This wasn't a huge issue. Yes, in these Eastern countries, hospitality is a big deal. It is important. This man had a sense of urgency to provide for his friend. Um, just to make a note, the bread at this time wasn't just something you ate alongside your meal. Many times it was your utensil that you were using to actually consume the food that you, you were eating. But even in this context, as, as significant as hospitality is, this was, still, this was still small. But the desires we bring to the Lord are far greater. They are of greater significance than the bread this man was seeking. Number five, we see this is just a, a small gift. This is just a few, just a few little flat cakes and breads. But our request, the Lord desires to give us even greater gifts, gifts for body and soul. This is not merely temporal, but rather these are spiritual things the Lord desires to give to you, to fill you with his spirit. That's where this passage ends there in verse 13. Number six, um, a selfish, unfriendly excuse for refusing the request that, that, that would have been understood, whereas the Father in his perfect love and his kindness offers us the most abounding promises instead of excuses. There's never a time that you can go to the Lord and pray to him and the Lord is just too busy to get to you, or there's, he has too much going on, or his plate is just too full, or he's just resting at this time. He is completely different from the man that was sleeping in his household during this time. So the argument is this. If this friend could and did succeed with his friend in such a case, then we can and will most assuredly succeed with our Heavenly Father. That's kind of Linsky's thesis point there for this. So if this friend could and did succeed with such a friend in such a case, then we can and will most assuredly succeed with our Heavenly Father. That's the, the lens that we need to see this through, all right? We need to see this as, as, as the freedom and boldness we have to go to the Lord in prayer, not just to be understood by, by repetitions or vain repetitions. You can go to the Lord many times over, but the key here is to understand is that the door is open for you with the Lord. J.C. Ryle makes this point. He says, the application of the parable is clear and plain. If, importantly, if, if importunity succeeds so well between man and man, how much more may we expect it to obtain mercies when used to God? So we must have boldness in prayer, knowing that God is our Father. Those are kind of the, 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 the two points that are very applicatory to this illustration that is given here at the beginning. There should be a boldness in prayer, and we must remember that God, we must remember God as Father. So let's look there with boldness in prayer. We're going to look at verses 9 and 10. And I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, 
and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Um, what kind of prayers are appropriate to bring to the Lord? What kind of concerns should we bring to the Lord? Your, your areas of supplication, what would be off-limits is it only big things? Is it only things that are significant in the eyes of the world and in the eyes of other people? Some will have the perspective, and I think this has even affected some aspects of, of church history, though paganism may have done it as well. But some will say, you know, the Lord is busy. He has many concerns, and, and he, de he doesn't need to be bothered with all the little peccadillas that you have in your life. You know, rather you only go to the Lord when it's something really big. It's something really significant. I think this is possibly something that has influenced and motivated this, this idea that exists in Roman Catholicism, and that is this idea of praying to the saints. Instead of going to God for what you need, all right, God has assigned various saints areas that they can be concerned with, things that they can take care of, and then if it rises up the chain, then he can deal with it. But they have these saints here that are able to dispense grace. Remember that idea in Roman Catholicism, this idea of they can dispense grace in some way. There's a treasury of merit. You remember those ideas? This idea that there are certain people that were so holy and righteous in their life, they had attained, attained for themselves through their works grace, and they had so much that it that, that it, it it was it, it's super arrogation is the word. It's the big word. There's so much grace that was there, it covered all their sins, and then there was enough left over so they can share some with other people. You remember those ideas? Well, the that's not what grace means. That's not the idea of, of grace. But this is the belief that is there, and there is the idea that there are saints that you can go to. And I was curious, I looked up a few of them. I was, you know, it's it's interesting to look at the ways of the superstition that is, that is out there. If you're an animal rights activist, can you guess which saint was assigned to that? That would be Francis of Assisi, not surprising. He was, he was, he was the one that is quoted as saying, you know, share the gospel wherever you go and when necessary use words. Well, that's not exactly how that works. You can't share the gospel without using words, but supposedly he even went out and was sharing. The Bible says to, you know, to, to share the word of God with all of creation. So he was going out and talking to the animals and the trees. They had no idea what he was saying. Um, but that's the stories that we have. Candle makers have Ambrose of Milan. I don't know the background of that. Computer programmers. I found that interesting. Isidore of Seville. Television workers. Um, I, I guess they're not used as much unless the, the ones that are building them were using this. Gabriel, the archangel. And then bankers have Michael, the archangel. I have no idea why these are given these particular assignments. So that was news to me. People aren't just praying to saints. They're also now praying to these various archangels. But here's the reality. We have no such instruction in the scriptures. It's not that the Lord couldn't enlist saints to do something like this. But we have no instruction at all within the scriptures. In fact, the instruction we do have within the scriptures would teach us not to pray to the deceased. That this is not a way of obtaining favor from God, obtaining grace from God. A necromancy, that's the, that's the appropriate word there, or communication with the dead is forbidden 
multiple times in the scriptures. We have that in Leviticus 20, 5 through 8, Deuteronomy 18, 9 through 14. I could list many, many more. And don't say, oh, well, that's just the Old Testament. All right, we, we need to unhitch from the Old Testament. We're not tied to these laws anymore. No. Um, even the reasoning of Isaiah in Isaiah 8, verse 19 says, and we, when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not the people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? I think that, that, is, that is loud and clear that God does not desire or intend for us to be using mediums or to be seeking to communicate with the dead, even for a good reason, even though it might make sense. I would imagine all the times when people are doing this, they're doing these various arts, they're going to mediums, they're going to fortune tellers, they're doing it for some purpose that seems good to themselves. This is forbidden. This is in the category of, of sorcery. We have that forbidden in Revelation 21, Galatians 5, many times over. We're not to be participating in this. And that is what this so-called communication with the dead is. Even though you have a good reason for doing it, it's not appropriate. It is off. It is out of bounds. And I know that's offensive. If you're a Roman Catholic, you may find that offensive that I just was as bold as I was here and I said it the way that I did. But there is... That's what's happening. You're communicating with dead people. You're praying to dead people. Even if you say, I'm not worshiping them, I'm just praying to them. I've seen how some people do this prayer, and it looks a whole lot like, like worship. But even still, you're not supposed to be communicating with those who are dead. What should we do? We should bring it to the Lord. We should be bringing our concerns and our prayers to the Lord. Christ has purchased that for us. Even the small things, even something you might think to be a peccadillo. And I think we can find many instances in Scripture and in life where the Lord is concerned with even the small things. God is infinite. He's omnipresent. He's omniscient. All right? So there's nothing, everything is small to God. I mean, nothing is, nothing is, is, is like, oh, wow, what am I going to do with this? He's not shocked. He's not concerned. He's not, he's not thinking. Have you thought of that? God doesn't think. He doesn't need to think. He's not like you. What are you doing when you're thinking? You're trying to look at the information that you have. You're trying to consider the information that you have. You're trying to make the best decision. that you. God has always known the best decision. He has always known what he is going to do. God knows God unlike anyone knows God. God knows God fully. But I want you to think of this. Even think of this, this story in the Old Testament. That I think informs us, reminds us that God is concerned about even the small things in life. Or what when you consider, you know, the whole span of time and human existence and everything that is within the scriptures, I find this miracle to be fascinating. And that miracle is one that happened during the time of Elijah and Elisha in 2 Kings, verses 6, 1 through 7. I'm going to read this passage. It says, Now the sons of the prophets said to Elisha, See the place where you dwell under your charge is too small for us. Let us go to the Jordan, each of us, to get a log, and let us make a place for us to dwell there. And he answered, Go. Then one of them said, Be pleased to go with your servants. And he answered, I will go. So he went with them. And when they had come to the Jordan, they cut down trees. But as one, one was felling a log, his axe had fell into the water, and he cried out, Alas, my master, it was borrowed. Look at the man's concern there. Alas, my master, it was borrowed. Oh, no, what is going to happen? I was seeking to do a good thing here and build this house so we had a place to stay. 
and the main part of this tool is in the water. When he showed him the place, he cut off the stick and threw it in there, and it made the iron float. And he said, take it up. So he reached out his hand, and he took it. I want you to consider this. Consider the, this issue. This is, you know, one of the, the, the sons of the prophets. There was a school of prophets that were being raised up or, or trained to be prophets. We don't have a lot of information about them, but, but they were there during this time of Elijah and, and Elisha. And the head of the axe had, had fallen into the water. He was chopping down this tree, and <coughs> the piece, piece came off, and he was concerned because he lost the tool, but particularly he was concerned because it was, it was borrowed. He was concerned because he borrowed the tool from a friend. He was not going to be able to return it. Now, I want you to think of this. Think of the many miracles that are there in the scriptures. Think of Lazarus being resurrected from the dead. Think of those that were lame their whole life and then were allowed to walk around. Think about the, the Red Sea and as it parted and the Israelites walked through and you think of these significant and major, major miracles within the scriptures. But then look at this one. It, it's, it's a tool. You know, some of you might not even think, well, is that even a big deal? Well, maybe you can go down to Harbor Freight, maybe get an axe for 10 or $15, and maybe that's not such a big deal. But if you don't have an axe and you need one, it's very, very valuable. It's very, very significant. And this tool was valuable to the person from whom this prophet borrowed the tool, and the tool was valuable to this man as well. Apparently, he didn't have the money to buy one of these himself. He had to borrow it from someone else. And here he is, the top of it falls into the water. He's going to have to go back to his friend and say, I'm sorry, I took your axe and I'm bringing you back a stick. I have nothing to give to you. But the Lord heard his concern. All right, the Lord heard his concern when he cried out, alas, it was borrowed all right, maybe that wasn't a, maybe, you know, he was just, he was just crying it out. The Lord, Lord heard him, and the Lord was concerned with this. And I'm not saying that anytime you want something, a miracle is going to happen because it, it won't. But this gives us this a glimpse into the mind of God, a glimpse into how God works and acts, that the Lord is concerned. You can bring small things to the Lord. You, you must not consider it based upon all the other things that are in the world or all the other prayers that people are giving. He's not asking you to do that. It's not your job to be God for God. God's not looking for someone to fill in for him. He's not looking for a replacement. You don't need to concern yourself with the things that would be for God to be focusing upon. There must be a boldness and an expectation of our prayers to the Lord. There must be a boldness and an expectation. An expectation that the Lord hears us. An expectation that we can go to him. That's been purchased for us. We're not expecting that whatever we pray, we're always going to get. I'm not going to give you a formula that if you'll just do this, this, and this, that whatever you ask for, you're always going to get, except for this one key. If you pray according to the will of God, you're always going to get what you pray for. You're always going to receive that, whether you get the item that you're praying for or, or not. The Lord knows what is best. But we're to be bold in such a way, not that we're disrespectful, not like those that I've told you about, those that would go to the Lord d demanding something, or, or yeah, as though, I don't know if you've seen this, I don't know why it is when, when, when some people, when they're exercising demons, they feel like they need to talk really, really loud, I don't know if demons don't hear very well, but they, they think they need to yell into microphones and yell 
around people for that purpose, and also people when they're, when they're demanding things from God, that you will find that they begin to yell really loud as well, and re- they will repeat the same things over and over. We are not to be disrespectful. We are not to demand that the Lord give us something in particular, okay? But we are to be bold in approaching. We are to approach him as a father. We have this this formula that is here, to ask, to seek, and to to knock. We have that verses 9 and 10. He says, and I tell you, ask, it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, it will be opened for you. Everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And the one who knocks, it will be opened. Ask, seek, and knock. You're going to the Lord with this request. You're pursuing the Lord in this request. And you're, 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 you're doing this in an expectation that he, that he hears you. Not that you have to do something in particular so that he will hear you. Okay, it's not that I need to do so many good deeds this week and then the Lord's going to answer my prayers or he's going to hear me or I'm having financial trouble so I need to do these religious actions and then I will gain something from God. We are not manipulating God. Prayer is not transactional. It's not like I'm doing this here and now the Lord's going to give me this over here. That is a a poor understanding. He is your father. He loves you and he cares for you. We must remember God as Father. That's how we are approaching him. We're approaching him as one who cares for us and loves us and desires what is best for us. We must go to him in that way. We must go to him as as one who is a part of the family of God, one for whom that opportunity has been purchased for you by God. The, The Lord bought this for you. The Lord, Lord redeemed you that you could approach him. Let's look at this, verses 11 through 13 in Luke 11. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish ask him for a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Now, I know some of you young men that are out there, you say, well, maybe I might like a snake. Or maybe I might like a pet scorpion. Okay, that's not the point here. Okay, the idea is if you asked for something, he wouldn't give you a a scorpion to eat. Imagine how dangerous that would be. That would be harmful. Imagine a a serpent. Think of this like a a poisonous serpent, something that would harm you, right? You're asking for breakfast. You're asking for, um, remember, that's the breakfast Jesus made for everyone. He made them fish for breakfast, all right? You know, the child's asking for something to eat, and you give them something that is harmful, you know, you, as, as, as people that, that, that have children that are imperfect yourselves, you still give good things to your children. God is a better father than any of us. God is a greater parent than any of us could ever be. God is a father to you, dear Christian. And you can remember this. Remember this specifically in remembering what he has done for you. The mere fact that you can go to him in prayer is a result of what God has done for you. He has given you life in Christ Jesus. Christ came and dwelt among us and died that you could be saved, that you could have life, that you would be redeemed, that God's wrath would no longer be over you, that Christ would fulfill the law in every way and it could be credited to your account as though you had lived life perfectly. That's what Christ purchased for his people. He has given you his spirit if you are, in fact, in Christ. The Lord has awoken your eyes, given you understanding. 
has given you a new heart, made you a new person? What greater reminder do you need of God's great love and concern for you? The Lord loves you as a parent, as one who desires what is best for you, desires to use um, opportunities and things that happen in your life for your good, for growing you, for, for sanctifying you. Oh, dear friends, the Lord has purchased this opportunity for you. The Lord has opened this door whereby you can access the courtroom of God, has opened heaven whereby you can go to him whenever you want in prayer. And you can trust that the Lord will do what is best. How do we know that? Because he is all wise. He's all knowing. The Lord can do what he wants. He is all powerful. He's able to do all of this for you. And so he's even willing not to, grant, not to grant what you request because maybe that's not what is best for you. Maybe that's not best according to his plan, but it doesn't change our going to the Lord. It doesn't change our boldness in going to him, our, our, our trust, our expectation that we will be heard. Again, not because we are doing particular things. Actions. We've mentioned this before. Some have this perspective. Well, you better give money to church, otherwise the Lord's going to get his money somewhere. You're going to get a flat tire. Your transmission is going to break. Something's going to happen to disrupt your life that God's going to get his money. And what, what an interesting perspective of God that he's up there just needing his money, wanting to get his money, and I'm going to take that money. as though How's he getting money out of flattening your tire? That doesn't really make sense. But that's not a good motivation to support the ministry of the church. That's not a good driving force so that my tires will stay fully inflated. I'm going to give money to the church. You don't have such a promise. You know, I've given money to the church for many years, and I get flat tires. There's no promise that your car is going to run well because you gave money to the church. That shouldn't motivate us for doing this in the same way with prayer. All right, we must not look at God as one who's just looking to come down on us, looking to crush us, but rather looking at one who is a father, one that loves you, one who cares for you, who wants what is best for you. And remember this, the Lord Jesus not only gave you this opportunity, opened this door whereby you can access the courtrooms of God and pray to the Lord, he has made you worthy where you can even go to God in prayer. God has made you worthy to worship him in prayer. Worthy, whereby you can go and freely worship him. He has saved you for this purpose. And some of you may not like that example, but that's what he has done. He has, he has given you life. He has made you one who can see him rightly, one who has been redeemed, one who is welcome there in the family of God. Look at Paul's Paul, how he lays this down, this is a little bit of a longer passage, but I love how Paul lays this down over and over. Paul, in the book of Ephesians, and many others, will communicate certain things about us. He will say, this is who you are. This is what God has done. This is what you are in Christ. Therefore, and then he will give you, this is what you need to do. And he does that right here, and it very much ties to this idea of prayer. Because God has done certain things, you are now able to approach him in prayer because God has done this therefore you should approach him in prayer like this that should be the, the motivating factor in your life Christian the motivating factor that you should have for walking in righteousness and obedience should be the motivation of what God has done for you because of what he has done for you in Christ you should therefore walk in obedience because he has 
given you life. You should therefore walk in life. He has brought you into the light, so therefore walk in the light. We see that pattern communicated in John's epistle. But Ephesians 3 in verses 7 through 21 says this, Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power to me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and bring to light everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for, for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Now verse 11, this was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness to access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. He says things about God and what he has done, and therefore says because of this, you should approach with boldness to God. You should approach the Lord with boldness. Why? Because you're worthy of it? Because, because of what you have manifested and brought about on your own? No, because of what God has done, what God has done within you, what God has done in you through Christ Jesus. And look at verse 14. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father. Look at that even as the reason that Paul is saying he goes to God in prayer is because of who God is and what God has done. Then he says, for this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. What a fantastic prayer that Paul is laying out on behalf of the saints. That God would do what God has said he is going to do. You can always pray in accordance with God's promises. You can always pray that God will do what he said he's going to do. You're not praying this because God doesn't know it or he needs to be reminded. That prayer very much is affecting you, but it is a means that God uses in your life and in the life of the church. Continuing, it says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to, be, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. And you see this pattern flowing through that passage where Paul is declaring what God has done, how it is that you should see yourself, how it is you should thereby respond because of what he has done. He's praying that God would do what God said he's going to do within the life of these believers and within the life of the church. And then he ends there with doxology. He ends there with praising God, glorifying God. These are all excellent components to have within a prayer, but the Lord Jesus has made you worthy to approach the Lord in prayer. He has made you that way. He has given you life whereby you can approach him, where you can pray to him, and it is not a sinful prayer. Remember that prior to your conversion, all you could do was sin. I know you may not like that statement. You may not understand that. You may be saying to yourself, well, I never did this or that. You're thinking about all the things that other people have done, but that's not the standard. You must ask yourself, what is the standard? By what standard should I judge myself? And the standard, as Pastor Fry was talking about today in Sunday school, is God's perfect and righteous holy law, which requires 
perfect obedience in word, thought, deed, and even your desires are judged by God. All of these aspects are there, but God has given you life. God has made you alive. He has given you a new mind, given you new understanding. He's given you new desires. How many of you, prior to being a Christian, desired not the things of God? You found the, the, the scriptures to be but, but drudgery. You found going to church to be but the, the most boring thing that you could ever do. But the Lord has worked within you. The Lord has changed you. The Lord has made you alive. He has given you a desire for that which is holy, that which is good. And he has given you the opportunity here to pray and to pray in a way that is righteous and holy. It, it is a good thing. It is a good thing. Your worship prior to being that was self-centered. It was idolatrous. Even when you said the right things, you said them not for the right motive, not for the right ends or the right purpose. The Lord has given you life and has changed you. And the Lord has done this redemption for you in Christ that you may walk in him, that you may walk in this freedom to pray. See what he has done. See the goodness that is there, and the Lord desires for you to come to him. The Lord desires for you to come to him in prayer. He has saved you for that purpose, that you would come to him, that you would worship him. Remember, the Israelites, the Israelites that were saved out of Egypt, let my people go, why? That they, that they may go and they may worship their God. They were sent out into the wilderness to worship the God that had saved them from a slavery in Egypt, and the God has saved you that you may walk in this wilderness journey even now and worship him and serve him. First Timothy 2 in verse 5 talks about what was purchased for you, what Christ serves and does for you, that you can go to the Lord in prayer. First Timothy 2 in verse 5, for there is one God, there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Do you see that? You see how he serves, what, what he does. You see the ways in which Christ is a greater mediator. As the writer of Hebrews says, he's a greater mediator than any high priest in the Old Testament that would come every single year and walk into the most holy place and would throw blood upon the Ark of the Covenant each and every year. And you had blood, likely, I would assume, caked on there year after year, built up, showing the insufficiency of that mediator. That mediator merely allowed them to stay within that land as they were working within the Mosaic Covenant. But Christ tore down that veil. There is no separation between God and man through Christ Jesus. He is that bridge. Do you have such a mediator? Do you know the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you been changed? Have you, have you become a new person? Are you, is there a time where your life, where you were changed, where you repented of your sin and trusted in Christ Jesus? Or do you see yourself as one who will just approach the throne of God, who will just walk right into the throne of God. Just walk in there and state your case. Represent yourself. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death. To, to stand before God in your own righteousness, in your own goodness, in your own sufficiency will be to your eternal destruction. God made a way whereby you can be saved. It is in Christ Jesus. It is by seeing the hopelessness of your own efforts. It's by seeing the hopelessness of your own deeds 
by seeing your own insufficiency and seeing Christ as sufficient. Christ is the only means that God has given whereby you can be saved. Nothing should excite us to go to the Lord in prayer like what Christ has done for us. Nothing. Think of this, this illustration. Think of this illustration. Think of the story of Esther. Remember Esther, and she was the queen, and the king, the, the king loved her. But we, I think sometimes we don't see the greatness of what has been purchased for us in Christ Jesus. We don't see the greatness of being in the family of God. We don't see the greatness of, of having opportunity to be in the court of heaven. To be absent from the body is to be in the presence of the Lord. That's the promise that we have because we don't we don't see monarchies rightly we don't see this this idea of, of a kingdom rightly or this this idea of of this ruler in this courtroom that you could not just go up and march yourself into the court of the king or if you did it'd be very costly for you it could be very dangerous if you were not one that the king cherished and cared for if you were not one that the king honored and respected you were one who would do that at your own demise Esther 5 and 1 through 3, and this was even so for, for Esther as the queen, as the wife of the king. It says this, on the third day Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's quarters where the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room opposite the entrance of the palace. And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight and he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter and the king said to her, what is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given to you, even to the half of my kingdom. Remember, she, she, she put herself in danger even in approaching as she did. She would have been put to death had he not extended the royal scepter, had he not accepted her into his courtroom. It was dangerous to go and just um, trample into the king's courtroom. Um, but he loved her. He cherished her. He, she was precious to him. He even said, would I not even give you half of my kingdom? If we can see an illustration like that with even this ungodly, in many ways, earthly king toward the wife that he loved, how much more, dear church, does Christ love you? How much more, you who have been ransomed, you who have been bought, you the bride of Christ, who have been purchased, through the perfect blood of Christ Jesus, atoned for, purchased through his life and his death and his resurrection. How much more is this applicable to you? How much more should this inform you as you go to him, that he will give you what is good for you? He will give you what is best. Now that you can trust him in this, that you can have a boldness in your prayers in coming to the Lord because he has purchased that opportunity for you. He has granted that to you. It's not that you do so many good things and then you have access to him. Christ has already done the good things that are necessary. You must come to Christ by grace and through faith. And you can trust him as father, as one who will give you what is best, as one who will use even the difficulties and the pains and the sufferings in life for your good purpose in conforming you even to the image of his son, as one who has given you and will fill you with the Holy Spirit as you seek after him. He is your father. And he has granted a way where you can approach him. Oh dear saints, be going to the Lord. 
be of, of regular prayer. We see Paul saying that, that we should be unceasing in prayer. And then we have to say, well, he doesn't mean every single moment of the day that you're praying. Well, no, he means that it's not just certain parts of the day or certain times. We can get regimented that it's got to be this time and this time. And then if I don't do this, I won't get this blessing from God. We must not see these things that way. You may go to the Lord at any moment. There absolutely should be times of reading the scriptures and praying, but you may pray to the Lord as you are driving down the road if necessary. And you may do that at times when things are especially difficult or dangerous on the road. You must see this as an opportunity that the Lord has purchased for you and that is there for you. And the Lord desires to bless you as one who cares for you and loves you, for he is Father. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you grateful for what has been granted to us, what you have given to us. This glorious opportunity that we have to approach you in, in prayer, this glorious opportunity that we have that has been purchased for us in Christ Jesus, may we be a people that utilize this blessing that we have. May we see this not as a small thing, but as something that is great. That we may see that we have access to the ruler of rulers, the king of kings, the lord of lords, the one who rules all. May we remember that you love us, that you have shown love to us, that you've shown kindness to us. And not in a, in, a, in a superficial way, but in a way that has changed our relationship with you. A way that has healed that which was broken, mended that which was damaged. Through Christ and his work, the head of the serpent has been crushed. And that is granted us right relationship with you you've made us whole you've made us alive you've made us even worthy to access you may we use this may we utilize it may we cherish this we pray this in jesus name amen